Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, digging out of the rubble of this democratic establishment debacle. So let's take a cleansing breath. Where the hell are we right now? Early this morning, Donald Trump launched his coup attempt, the one that we have been warning about. He claimed victory and demanded an end to ballot counting and voting, which had already concluded. It is clear why. If all of the ballots are counted, it does look like Joe Biden will squeak through to be president. He just took Wisconsin minutes ago, which is better than the alternative, of course. But even if Trump is gone, this was hardly a great victory. In fact, it was a big defeat for Democratic leadership. And by the way, a defeat as well for their buddies in the media who kept fantasizing about a blue wave that has never been there. Look at the facts. Given the huge turnout, Joe Biden underperformed Hillary Clinton, but still closed that gap to win Wisconsin because more voters just turned out. But his margins were smaller. And then look at the down ballot. I cannot underestimate how horrifying the down ballot races look. Historically, when Republican approval ratings dip below a certain number, when they are extremely unpopular, Democrats can basically just like show up and sweep. In 1992, Democrats swept the presidency, the Senate, and Congress. That was the first Bush who was unpopular. In 2006, in the midst of the Iraq War, Democrats won back the House. In 2008, when the world hated W, Obama swept in with the Democratic Congress. This was supposed to be one of those years with a pandemic, with the most unpopular president in history, with an economic crisis, with record presidential turnout. Dems were supposed to sweep, but they didn't. Let's put it this way. If Hillary Clinton ran this year with this turnout and had the same election, the same strategy, and the same margins that she had in 2016, she would have done better than Joe Biden. Seriously. For instance, Nevada, she won Nevada. It's now on the margin of defeat. This is mind-boggling. But now Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate and Nancy Pelosi lost seats in the House, even in super blue New York State. Swing Swing seats are supposed to be protected in presidential years in New York. The neoliberal Republican light Democrats got routed big time. Max Rose, he's out. Tom Suozzi, they're out. They're out in New York. There are Republicans now representing part of New York City in Congress. This was a huge opportunity opportunity booted away by the Democratic leadership. Can we show my tweet from earlier? Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden himself, they failed. And part of this is because of the legacy of the 2010 shellacking, as President Obama called it. We lost the House because Dems took their eyes off of anywhere but big cities and presidential elections. We defunded state Democratic parties. And as a result, legislatures flipped Republican in states that could have or once were Democratic. And that redrew the congressional lines. And that inspired voter suppression laws that we live with today. If only President Obama had recognized the importance of party building, movement building, that spoke to voters hurting after the 2008 economic collapse in which he was brought in to fix. He didn't. And we never adjusted our strategy. And as a result, the last 10 years, working people have heard from the Tea Party and Donald Trump. And the Democrats never showed up. 
So Biden may win, but once again, in a census year, we may lose another decade. You know, President Johnson lost the South for several generations in exchange for the Civil Rights Act. Obama lost rural and suburban voters for what's going to be looking like two decades in exchange for a watered down employer-based healthcare bill. Extremely unpopular as well. Okay, so, so, so where does the movement go from here? Well, let's presume that we aren't all rounded up in the next 48 hours before Biden's ballots are counted and his win is confirmed. And I'm actually not kidding you. The danger that Trump will try to do is what he says is real. What he has been saying has, has, has really turned out to be true. And don't underestimate that. He may even try to seize the presidency that he has not won. Last night, major cities across this country were boarded up, and there were more police on the streets of New York City than my activist friends said that they had ever seen before. So for the next few days, we stand watch against the fascists. But if Biden is able to get the votes counted and take office, our agenda is clear. Number one, Democratic Party needs new leadership now in both houses of Congress and in the party structure. The moderate middle strategy has failed. Neoliberalism is dead. There is no reason why New York loses Democratic seats in a supposed wave year. Number two, the country's needs are as urgent as the day before the election. So we have to carry on the fight for Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, pandemic relief, free college, a living wage, jobs, 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 the right to organize freely and effectively. Now, we are already hearing that the point of this election is that progressive ideas are unpopular outside of big cities. Let's play that Axios clip real quick. Democrats had all the advantages. They had money, they had media, they had a terrible political environment surrounding Trump, and Trump is either going to lose narrowly or he's going to win uh, narrowly. And by the way, I'm going to get pummeled on Twitter for this. Like the new left has to understand Biden was probably right about what where America was. A lot of liberals wanted him to be a lot more liberal. That's not where the country is when you get outside of the big cities. And that's why Joe Biden, I do think in his rhetoric, was careful and probably did play it right in trying not to scare off uh, people who don't like uh, sort of the liberal establishment and don't like a lot of what they hear necessarily in, in the media. He tried to thread that needle. Now, I think people are going to question and should question, like, why did he do the four corner stall for months? Uh, mm -hmm. People thought it was working and now right, that's, uh, that's, it's this close. People will rightly ask, why wasn't he? Okay, that is absolute crap. It is not what happened. What happened is that Donald Trump did a better job of leading a people's party than the Democrats did. The problem is he is leading in the wrong direction. The country wants what we are proposing, a safer, healthier, fairer, and cleaner world. Florida, Florida, that Biden lost, passed a $15 minimum wage by 61% last night. Our ideas are winning. The neoliberal Republican-like candidates are losing in years they're supposed to be protected by the progressive wave that's turning out. We fail to say these progressive policies in a way that galvanized voters, though. This campaign was the anyone but Trump campaign, and it didn't work to mobilize the country down ballot. We were against Trump for sure, but now we need to be clear what we are for. We are the real People's Party. And it is time that we said so. From, so from here on out, there really will be only two things in the middle of the road. 
That's a Jim Hightower line, if you guys don't know. Uh, yellow lines and failed moderates. His whole line was two things in the middle of the road are yellow lines and dead armadillos. It's now going to be yellow lines and failed moderates. We have a terrific show today. We have Matt Stoller on, and later we're talking to Zed Jelani and Jordan Zacharin. But first, here are a few stories at the top of my feed. We have been here before. Voting results from Fox News show us yet again that the people are ready for a progressive agenda and that it's the political establishment preventing this agenda from taking shape in American politics. 72% of voters support government-run health care. And 72% also believe that the government should be spending more money on developing clean energy. Bernie Sanders' agenda won the primary and it is winning with voters. It deserves to be on the ballot. There's a chilling reminder of what happens when you run a conservative Democrat against a truly conservative Republican. Of course, Amy McGrath lost her Senate race in Kentucky, meaning that Mitch McConnell will continue to hold power in the Senate. Charles Brooker, endorsed by Bernie Sanders and supporting Medicare for All, had the message and the platform to provide an alternative to McConnell's deference to Trump. And but by positioning herself as a proper conservative rather than as a leftist with a vision for her community, McGrath set herself up to lose, although not before raising $46 million for her consultants to do so. <laughs> so Republicans, they want to win. And Democrats, they just want to make money. That's my theory. As of right now, Democratic Socialists of America endorsed candidates. Those candidates that they've endorsed have won 26 out of the 30 races with DSA endorsements. DSA endorsement is much more than words. Democratic Socialists across the country have knocked on doors, made phone calls, shared literature, and mobilized their community to put leftists in office. AOC is entering her second term in office. It shows us how successful and powerful these victories can be. All right, guys, uh, if you aren't already, make sure to click subscribe and click that little bell because last night we went live and the only way you get that alert is if you click the bell. Uh, and if you're in the chat, you know, fight with me. I have a lot of comments today and, and I would love to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, but we're gonna also put these shows, we do it every day on patreon.com. So if you can join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, uh, that is how we are able to do our specials. That's how we're able to run this show, how we're able to do the show daily. Uh, we have a great team. And honestly, it's because of our patrons. So please join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be back in two seconds with Matt Stoller. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I think we had a little bit of a technical issue there. Uh, Matt Stoller is the author, director of, and director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He is the author of Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. Uh, he's a former policy advisor to the Senate Budget Committee. Fascinating. Uh, Matt, I wanted to have you on last week because uh, I was really obsessive um, over just this this tech situation. Um, and, and I wanted to think about how to really, you know, what, what the game plan should be in a Biden administration uh, to, to break up these monopolies. But last night, I just kept thinking, Matt Stoller must be losing his mind. And my entire opening was about like, thanks, Obama, you created this mess. So can we just start with that? <laughs> sure. I mean, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have, you have been beating this drum for so long and I, I you get a lot of heat for it and you got a lot of heat for it, but... Listen, the shellacking in 2010, I think, created uh, a situation of voter suppression, 
um, you know, the the uh, his inability to like invest in state parties really created this opening for um, working people who were hurting after 2008 to be swooped up by um, these pseudo populists. I mean, that's just my theory on this and, and how it's really hard to move people away from that brand, no matter what you do and no matter what kind of election it is. But, um, you know, you're much smarter than I am. So I want to hear your take. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I got it wrong. I was like, the polls are probably right because polls are usually right and they're not apparently. Um, uh, yeah, look, I mean, Obama was a bad president who hurt a lot of people and Democrats refused to deal with that. They like won't even admit that Obamacare sucks, right? They're like GoFundMe's everywhere being like, please, I need to, I can't afford surgery. And people are like, we have to defend Obamacare. And it's just, that's weird and dumb and it's time to grow up and just acknowledge that it didn't work out. And like, we have to not do, like admit it, right? People don't trust us because why should they trust us? The last time they trusted us, like we screwed them over. I mean, it's, right. not, that, it's not that surprising. I mean, it, it's interesting because like in my opening, I, I mentioned how Biden's actually underperforming Hillary Clinton right now. Like if Hillary Clinton were running right now, with the same strategy with this turnout, she would have won the, the, the votes that she lost, the 77,000 votes that she lost in the three, the three Rust Belt states. She would have, she already won Nevada. Nevada wasn't on the map as a, as a swing state in 2016. So, I mean, last night when we were doing our analysis on the majority report, I was like, I don't know if anybody, any Democrat could have won handedly in this environment. And if, I mean, if Bernie was the top of the ticket, I don't know, frankly. And I don't know if down ballot, I posed that question on, on Twitter. I said, would, if Bernie were at the top of the ticket, okay, maybe he would have won as Biden's looking like he's gonna win. But would Bernie, I mean, down ballot, would they have hurt as bad as, as they did under Biden? I mean, this is horrifying. This is a shellacking. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, the reality is people want to pretend like there are a lot of differences between Bernie and Biden and that there's all these fights between the center and the left. And my view is that's all basically fake. Um, the, the, no, no one says Obama was a bad president. Like Trump, first thing he did is he was like, Bush was a disaster. 9-11 was a disaster. Iraq war is a disaster. And like he made fun of Jeb Bush on stage for his brother being a, a, a screw up. And like, we haven't seen anything like that um, from the Democratic Party and Biden and Bernie and all of them sound like they don't realize that people's lives have gotten worse and have gotten worse for decades now. I mean, I mean, you could go back to Bill Clinton, you know, who, who, who screwed the country too. But we, the reason we're not trusted is because we are not trustworthy. And we lied. And I think that's really the key here is it's like people are like, how can they people choose Trump? And what, what you know, Trump screwed up everything. And I, I agree with that. But I also get why people don't think that Democrats would be better. I mean, Obama screwed up everything and we can't even admit it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the other thing is that there's just been systematic bullying within the Democratic Party that's for four right. years. So we can't even talk about it. So we have to pretend like we need to defend Obamacare, which is obviously bad. As anybody who's ever used the healthcare system knows, it's bad. It didn't, you know, it's like we hired a plumber and he didn't fix the sink, but we really like him. He's a great guy. So let's hire him again. And like, you're like, I don't know, maybe we should get someone who can fix the sink. And you're like, how dare you? 
Why do you hate that plumber? It's just weird. It's like weird. It didn't work out. Like it's not personal. It just didn't work out. Well, you know, that's also part of the else technical about it. <laughs> the other side of that, I mean, there's also this, it's not just that they bully anybody who challenges Obamacare or the, I mean, obviously Obamacare. <laughs> He's a good guy. <laughs> They're punishing though. They punished Keith Ellison who dared challenge Obama from yeah. the left. Right. Um, policy wise and and put in the genius Tom Perez who is just uh I don't know <laughs> done a great job rebuilding the party oh, nationwide. He's like, these days. It's like wow yeah. that guy amazing. He's, yeah, we should give him a promotion guys. I think he wants to be attorney general. Sounds I mean, great. I mean, yeah, that's that's right. Make him president, you know <laughs> but that was to stop Keith Ellison who thank God is in Minnesota right now, uh, taking on you know right right wing white supremacists, um, and then he punished punished uh, Bernie. I mean, like so much of it was because Bernie dared discuss maybe challenging Obama in the midterms or policy wise challenging Obama. So so much of this. I mean, I remember when I was covering the DNC chairs race, how many people were like, "You are not Democrat," not because. Bernie's independent and because of the Hillary messaging, you are not Democrats because you are challenging our president and our president's party and the strategy. And it was like, I'm not challenging anything. You lost 1200 seats. And now we're dealing with voter suppression laws and women have to like drive to another state to get an abortion because you know they couldn't invest money in Arizona. Like that's what happens when you're not leading a party. That's what happens when you're not leading a country. And if you don't let dissent happen in your party, this is how you get into this situation, is Republicans are able to capitalize out of a lack of a message that Democrats really should be speaking on the ground in many of these states. But, you know, that's, that's my well, yeah, no, I, I do. I'm a, I do policy work, right? I don't do electoral analysis. Yes. Um, because I think that the main, whatever, we won't get into that. But, you know, I worked on Dodd-Frank and we all knew behind the scenes. I mean, it was obvious that it was just, you know, useless. And we all pretended politically Obama and the Democrats are all like, we need to regulate Wall Street. How come these mean Republicans don't want to regulate Wall Street? And it's like you gave them a trillion dollars and then, you know, ask the regulators to like, maybe not let that happen again because it was awkward, right? That's what it was. And it's embarrassing and annoying. And, you know, it's annoying that Elizabeth Warren got up there and was like, we fought really hard and we got some random consumer protection agency that didn't matter very much. Like, no, we lost. Let's just admit it and let's have the fight. But we can't even admit that there are any disagreements because Democrats are such authoritarians. They can't even handle like a criticism of an obviously failed set of policies. Like it's really bad. I mean. What, what Bill Clinton did was catastrophic, but then what Obama did was also catastrophic. And the thing is, is that messaging, we always talk, the reason I hate electoral analysis is because everybody was obsessed with like, oh, how's the right way to message? Where do you invest money? And, you know, field campaigns, all that other stuff. And I, I'm just kind of like, I don't care about that. I care about how you govern because I think that how you govern is, makes the decision for a lot of people about whether they want to vote for you or not. And we just pretend like Democrats, and this is bad on the left too. I, I am not exempting the left. I think the left is a disaster. We don't talk about government. We yes. don't talk about government. We don't, we pretend like, like, oh, Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate, which obviously it was not because like Biden was the same. We don't talk about the fact that like the week before the 2016 election, millions of letters went out saying, 
congratulations, your health insurance premiums went up by 20% or whatever it was. Like we don't talk about governing, right? But normies, normal people, that's what they want. They want to hear about policy, not the dumb decency porn that Joe Biden was was like running on, right? I'm a good guy. And like, maybe he is and maybe he's not. Like everybody knows Trump's not a good guy. Like his voters know he's not a good guy, but they don't care because they're voting on policy. And that's way more mature than the nonsense we hear from the ivy encrusted technocratic dorks who like who run the Democratic Party? It's embarrassing and it's annoying, and I like I am think they should be like horribly embarrassed for what they did in this election and for the bullying that they've done for the last twenty years. I mean, as long as I've been in politics, like they did a bad job, and I don't mean that they did a bad job because they lost. I mean they did a bad job because when they had power, they made people's lives worse so that they could make money, and that's wrong. That is wrong. That's right. I mean, this is the, the amount of money that was lost. You're, these are working people who want their material lives bettered, and they thought the makeup of the Senate was, was going to influence that. And literally Jamie hundreds Harrison, of millions of dollars. Amy Harrison was a tobacco lobbyist. Thank you. Like, he was a tobacco lobbyist, right? That's like, I get it. I get, you know, poor, like, went, went Great to story. Very nice person, by the way. Ran for DNC chair, great, but a lobbyist. It doesn't care. Yes, I mean, like, look, but the thing is, is that, like, tobacco lobbyist, right? You you, you can go up and do something, like, bad or whatever, you so know. So was Kirsten Gillibrand, by the way. What? So was Kirsten Gillibrand, by the way. Yes, Kirsten Gillibrand, tobacco lobbyist. Like, she is no excuse, right? Jamie Harrison is like, I had to pay off my student debt. Then go do something good for the world, then run for office, right? Mm-hmm. Being corrupt doesn't qualify you for Congress just because there are a lot of corrupt people in Congress. Like, this is the problem. You, you can't, well, I don't know when I say this is the problem as if I know what the problem is. You know, I, I, like, we don't care what happens when we're in power. We just, it's like, it doesn't matter. And now everyone's like, Joe Biden, he won't be able to do anything even if he wins because the Republican Senate. Well, whatever happened, like Donald Trump doesn't seem to have that problem. Donald Trump seems to wield power no matter whether Congress is, you know, red, blue, or whatever. Like, he just does stuff because Donald Trump wields power. He wants to do things. And, like, Democrats are already making excuses for why they don't want to wield power. Fundamentally, it's a moral problem. Like, Democrats have to decide that they want to run the country in a way that makes people's lives better, and they haven't made that decision. They've made the decision so far that they want to run the country. They want to be in positions of status, like little Tracy Flicks, so that they can feel that they are better than other people. That is the point of democratic politics. And it is time to stop this nonsense. It's total garbage. And I'm like, I'm tired of it. I've had it, right? I mean, this is like obvious. Anybody who deals with big money stuff knows that this is what's it about. You know, you deal with like mediocrities who use complex language to scare people into having opinions about their society. It's bullying, pure and simple. And so this is a great chance. I do want to talk about the monopoly aspect of this too, because I think it leads in. You know, there's this authoritarianism in the Democratic Party, um, especially if you talk about money. I mean, there is a it's a different level of threat that you get if you talk about money. Sarah McGinnis, who ruined the Iowa caucuses, is like a senior advisor in the in Biden world. Like that is crazy. Like she literally was in charge of building an app that ruined the Iowa caucuses. Sorry, I'm just like, there's so many pieces of evidence. It's, 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 
so so there's two things here, right? Okay, we have we have a, a Democratic Party that's that that's authoritarian who punishes ruthlessly punishes anybody who dare disturb the status quo or reveal information or follow the money or challenge monopolies or do any of this work. The real like we're not just talking about like battling it out in the primaries. We're talking they make oppo files the size of this on you and then they like target you with like there's it's dirty you'll get smear pieces on you whatever so they try to ice you out of jobs i mean i'm sure you've dealt with the worst i like to think of it more like positive like i help pay for the college education of a bunch of lobbyists children like that's i that's how i like to think of it you know where they they get to do smear campaigns on me and you know that's what they're good at. It's what brings them joy. So I think that I like to bring satisfaction to people, and that's what I feel about. Like the Google Public Policy Shop, um, they can rent you know, a public island for one of their like bar mitzvahs or something. And, and yeah, yeah they need, that's right. They need a purpose, and I give it to them. And so that's I feel like it's a nice. Um, <laughs> You're uh, such an optimist, Matt. Okay, I'm gonna look at it that way now. When next time I get a hit piece on me, knock on wood. Um, but but there's okay. So that's that's the authoritarianism in the party, right? And then there's this much bigger authoritarianism, which which the tech monopolies, I mean, in the lead up to the election, I I was extremely concerned just seeing, and it was a big part of our show, um, how propped up, and there were some stories like Mother Jones did an investigation, uh, you know, which is not necessarily a place I normally go to, but it was a pretty riveting investigation of how Facebook uh, was punishing Mother Jones's stories and propping up like Ben Shapiro, who's the number one show on Facebook and all these right-wing shows. We know this, right? It's not just Facebook, it's it's everywhere. But there was a stark difference in feeling um, just as somebody who does like online hosting from 2016 to today in terms of audience and the moment. And I, 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 I have no doubt that played out in this election, at least down ballot, um, just not getting the views we had in 2016 on the left. And I'm really, really concerned on the movement side, really concerned about this because if you have a party you know, th- this is the perfect scenario for ne- neoliberals, losing down ballot, having Republicans as their, uh, you know, their excuse for everything. You know, Biden takes over the everything, the party again. They can be authoritarian with us. The movement is just going to have a harder time pushing them. And we don't have vehicles to get our, our voices out the same way. So can you tell me, like, just like what's going on in the tech world? Like what? I, I, help me understand it. Yeah. So it's really scary. And you, you're right to be scared. Uh, and there also are, are really interesting opportunities here as well, because I think we're not the only ones who are scared. You basically have the concentration of power in our economy into the hands of five companies. And, you know, Microsoft is one of them, so they don't really matter. Apple is like one of them, but they're, they're not that important. Um, but you have Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And, and Google and Facebook are the ones that you're probably dealing with. Amazon is more on the book side and a couple of other areas, but it's Google and Facebook that control the distribution of content. And they do this in two ways. Um, they've centralized power through anti-competitive practices and they've consolidated the, both the commun- their communication networks um, but the, and they've used that communication network uh, power to consolidate advertising revenue. And so they do two things with this. First is they kill pro-social spaces. So this would be the publishers and newspapers, shows like yours, um, institu- they, they kill the financing so that people can't come together around um, useful information. And the second thing that they do is they promote anti-social spaces. So cheap content, people fighting with each other 
being obnoxious, really? uh, any number of sort of conspiracy theory type of things. And that's the reason they do that is because they make money selling advertising. And so they want you paying attention. And, uh, and the easiest way to get you to pay attention is to give you uh, content and produce that content cheaply. And conspiracy theories and lies and stuff like that are, are, are cheaper. And I'm not, this isn't a partisan thing. Like it's yeah. it, it, on either side um, or in you know, lots of other random areas. Um, so, so that's what they're doing. They're killing the free press and, uh, and they are growing sort of the unfree press to, you know, for lack of a better word. And the way that you address, and this is a result of a lot of different forces, but, but the, the causal factor is the collapse of anti-monopoly laws. And anti-monopoly laws are things like antitrust. Antitrust law is designed to basically prevent anti-competitive behavior by, uh, by large companies and by industrial companies. And then a whole bunch of regulations. Um, so, so like common carrier regulations are what they're known as, but public utility rules, like now your child is one of them, or things like, you know, on electric utilities, things like that. Right. Um, those two bodies of law have kind of eroded since the 1980s because of the libertarians taking over the right and then the consumer rights people who are kind of weirdly libertarian taking over the left. And so over that time, you've seen this like immense concentration of power. And then you saw this, the, the technological um, transformation because of the internet and digital technologies. And so not only did you have this roll up of power because of the changes to the law, so that'd be something like Walmart, which is just like a chain store. But now you also build a new political, a new set of companies on top of a new technology, only the legal framework promotes monopoly. So that's when you get Amazon, which is like a chain store like Walmart, but you know, a hundred times as powerful because of all the things that they can do with data and with the internet, even with Google and Facebook. So it's a, it's a real uh, crisis, it's a political crisis. And I think what you fear is, and what you sort of are sensing is that the, there's an authoritarianism, there's a fascism in, inside of Google and Facebook that is not about any particular political party. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is doing this with Ben Shapiro, but it doesn't really matter. He's doing it with anyone kind of anywhere. And that there, there, is, a, um, there is a sort of a sense within the Democratic Party that, uh, that maybe we should align with Google and Facebook and use them to kind of crush our opponents, which whether those opponents are Republicans or whether those opponents are on the left. And I think on the right, you see the same dynamic where a lot of people are like, well, these guys are dangerous. And then some of the people on the right are like, yeah, but we can use them to crush our opponents. Either way, um, what you have is both parties are fractured because a lot of people, like basically the populace in both parties are like, this kind of power is too, is too dangerous for anyone to wield. And then the, like, the plutocrats in both parties are like, oh, cool, concentrated power. Let me see, let me see how I can do that. And I, you know, I, I think it's really worrisome. I worry about a Biden-McConnell uh, arrangement. And I really don't think that the progressives have come to grips with what this means. And what it really means is if you want, if the progressives want to have any power at all, they're going to have to like rethink their assumptions about what kind of policies to pursue, about what kind of politics to pursue, but they're also going to have to start making alliances with groups of people that they haven't traditionally been willing to deal with. And that that means compromise. And there are some things that, that like the left and progressives are really uncomfortable with um, but they were soundly repudiated in this uh, in this election. And yeah. I, I don't really, you know, we're going to have to start being honest about a bunch of things that are really uncomfortable for progressives and Democrats. And this is not a centrist like, left-wing thing. 
like, are you, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming like maybe, um, recognizing that you might have to team up with uh, folks that may not necessarily have the same identity politics that you do. Is that, is that what you're saying? Like the rural city divide? Like, or? There's a, there's a, I haven't pieced, you know, I haven't figured out how to say it in a way that like will make well, sense. You canceled. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there, there's a sort of set of annoying arguments that I think yeah, it's really easy to fall into. And I think it's not, and I don't want to fall into those arguments because I think they're simplistic. There's a, Populism is about, you know, I come out of a sort of a populist tradition. Populism is about <laughs> having gone to Harvard in a boarding school, right? <laughs> oh, my yeoman farming tradition. Um, <laughs> um, but like populism is about respecting craftsmanship and respecting the art of work yeah. and respecting everyone having the same rights and having access to capital and, and a little bit of capital and access to markets and and being, um, you know, whether you're educated or not, um, being treated like a citizen and having sort of the same rights as everyone else. It's, and it, it also means hating McKinsey and fundamentally believing McKinsey is evil or malevolent or a threat to democracy. And I think that like, there are a lot of racial implications and gender-based implications, but it's fundamentally about class and about elitism and I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of the kind of arguments that we make about questions of identity are actually questions of, of like in-group signaling among a bunch of different elitists. And I don't, and I like, it's hard to make the argument there um, without sounding boring and without being intentionally misconstrued. But that is, I think, like a large part of the dynamic and it's what you know. Trump feeds off of. It's what like neoliberals feed off. It's what the left feeds off of. Everybody gets this kind of like energy. It's like it's like political meth. It's really bad for you. Um, and I think we have to like look at the tectonic plates of our politics, which is you know how we do business with one another, right? That's like the fundamental question. It's like how do we do business with one another? Which is not just an economic question because business is also a cultural question. It's a question about families. It's a question about identities. Um, we are all workers. We are all producers. We are all lenders. We are all borrowers. And we are, these are fundamental questions. I mean, most of the states, the first law that they passed was a law against usury, right? This is right. This, uh, thousands of years. It's yep. religious. Like these are, these are questions that are fundamental. And I think that the, this is the sort of the, the left-wing tradi tradition of just um, of just thinking about like, oh, well, we just need to equalize resources really leaves these questions out. This is not about making sure that everybody is equal. It's not about treating everybody like we're walking spreadsheets. It's about making sure people are roughly equal, right? That nobody is too rich and nobody is too poor. But it's it's about making sure that people are free, right? That 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 and that's I think really the core part of it. And like, we haven't spent time, like you are not free to interact with your audience because you have an intermediary screwing around with them, which is Google or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And they are manipulating that relationship. That is a lack of freedom for you. It's a lack of freedom for your audience. It also has financial implications for you and financial implications for your audience. But those are uh, those are also cultural implications, right? And there are political implications. And I think we have to recognize that all of these things are, are part of what we're trying to describe when we're talking about populism and identity. 
And I, you know, it's so easy to avoid dealing with that because the neoliberal framework is designed to say, oh, that stuff is too complicated. What we really need to do is talk about messaging and narrative and all of this like postmodern garbage. But they don't. I mean, that's the other thing. They don't. They didn't have a message. I mean, you talk about the economy. A really interesting aspect of this election was in districts where there were higher concentrations of COVID deaths, they voted for Trump. And I think it actually is tied to Trump wanted to open up the economy and Democrats were just like, no response. I mean, Somebody said something I I found really interesting, which they were like, Democrats can't believe that somebody who's so egregiously mishandled the pandemic did so well. And they're like, then they don't pay attention to the fact that Andrew Cuomo is insanely popular and totally mishandled the pandemic. Exactly. I mean, I think I think that that like what who's that guy, Trevor Noah in The Daily Show, the Cuomo sexual thing, when it was just like that, that was just horribly embarrassing. Like Andrew Cuomo was a really mishandled the pandemic. And but he made people feel like they were that he was in control, just like you know Trump. Blasio, De Blasio mishandled the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I remember dealing. I was one of the few people on the Democratic side being like, "Hey, this pandemic is really serious." Back in February, and I remember a whole bunch of people on the left, including members of Congress, that people look up as leaders, were being like, "The most important thing is to patronize Chinese restaurants." Oh, right. That's, that's like, it was, it was like that's embarrassing, and like. You know, it, it's a real problem um, because there, there obviously was no serious. And I mean, yes, there was some like racism against Asian Americans. And I don't want to minimize that because that's important. But there was a global pandemic that has completely restructured our world. And that is more important. And n- nobody took that seriously until the stock market started to like get shaky. And then everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is for real, including people on the left and the right and the center. And it's like, I'm sorry, but a progressive movement that only recognizes policy problems when the stock market gets shaky is not a movement that any of us should want to be associated with. Just reality. Matt, um, oh my God, I want another hour with you. Hope you can come back on. Because th- I think this is the big question now is how, do, how does the progressive movement toughen up a little bit, get really strategic and ruthless and uh, and and, I, and that includes. I mean, I, I look back at Bernie's campaign, and I don't feel like they were ruthless enough. I don't feel like they, they, they were surgical in the way that uh, the Trump campaign, as crazy as they are, they were surgical. Bernie's a mess, and he's kind of like a coward and doesn't want to upset Democrats. I mean, this is this was the weird thing about the campaign. It's like Elizabeth Warren ran this really elitist, annoying campaign. But she actually scares Democrats. Like, if you're dealing with the Senate, like, people don't like Elizabeth Warren, but they're afraid of her, and she wields power. Bernie, nobody cares. They're like, oh, he's a kitten, whatever. He'll never challenge anyone or cause any real problem. Right. And it's like, it's not it's not just a being nice. Like, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's I think, a, a gentle way to put it. And I think it's, it's an unfair way to put it, because what it really is is Bernie is not interested in wielding power. And I think that that's, like, you know, fundamentally, it's immoral. I believe it's immoral to run for president if you have no intention of, of either winning or wielding power. And I think he got a little bit better on terms of wielding power in 2020, but not that much better. And I put it on him. I don't put it on the campaign. He He's very micromanagey. He, like, runs this stuff himself. Um, and I say this, you know, I respect him, but I also feel like it's time to, like, recognize that this was a failed experiment. And I was in the progressive movement from 2002 onward, and I just like, 
it, it's it's a failure. Like it's time to like recognize it's a failure. That's we have that's to it. It was a very hard, last night we had this conversation live on air and people did not like it. And it's like, okay, we love Bernie. We, I mean, I love them, I, but we failed. And a lot of folks behind the scenes have been holding back on assessing it because, because of this presidency. But now is the time where we have to sit there and say X, Y, Z reasons why we failed. And we've got to toughen up and we have to read our history because my God, it's like, it's, it's insane, the re repetition. Um, but anyways, uh, that's for another conversation. Matt Stoller, you're amazing. Thank you. You're the perfect. It was it was like cosmic. We had you. We were trying to book you, and the day after the election, perfect person to talk to about how to toughen up. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, take Bye. care, Matt. All right, we'll be right back uh, with our panel. Uh, we're going to be talking about the election results. Just so much to talk about. Zed Jelani and Jordan Zacharin are on, and we're running long, so stick around with us. Hey, uh, Majority Report crew, thanks for joining. I got a little alert that a bunch of folks from MR came over. Thanks for joining. If you haven't already, make sure to click that subscription button, that alert, smash that like, and uh, a little extra push towards Patreon, because as Matt said, it is tough. It is tough. Join us at patreon.com slash the Nomiki Show. We'll be right back with Zed and Jordan. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. Uh, I just want to acknowledge uh, Rick's Americana. Thank you for the love. Uh, Rick says, don't dismiss COVID denialism. Many Trump GOP voters didn't want another shutdown. Exactly. Too many voting blue meant voting for another economic shutdown. Um, absolutely. I was on Navarro Media uh, in the UK just before the show, and we were talking about that. They said, you know, what's going on? You know, is it small business owners? Um, and I think that's a, a very important point, which we'll get to with our panel. Uh, we have Jordan Zacharin, our regular. Uh, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check that out. This is the time to sign up for that newsletter. And uh, Zed Jelani, old friend, is a freelance journalist who has worked for The Intercept, Common Dream, and his work has appeared in The Guardian and Common Dreams. Uh, and he studies partisanship, which... <laughs> <laughs> Perfect day for Zed. Okay, I want to I, I want to start with this because this does lead into the economic conversation. Can we um, can we show that Anna Navarro uh, thing? You know me. I have been talking for months, like a broken record, about how Miami has been bombarded by uh, this narrative that the, you know the voting for any Democrat was voting, voting for a socialist, was voting yeah. for a communist. And we saw it pan out last night. And I've got to get it, to the it break. It might be false, but it doesn't mean it didn't work. I've got to get to the break, but I think you're right. And I think that is something that should be analyzed because you saw the ads uh, in certain places and you hear people talking in focus groups about voting for a Democrat or voting for Biden was the equivalent, equivalent of voting for a socialist. And I think we need to, uh, we're going to be discussing that over the coming weeks and really the coming months. Exciting. We are going to be the center of conversation on CNN. Maybe they'll invite one of us on to give our perspective on uh, whether or not the Cuban vote, which never votes for Democrats, uh, decided not to vote for Biden because of us. Anna Navarro, yeah. Republican strategist who couldn't mobilize her voters. Guys, what do you think of that? Jordan, go uh, for it. <laughs> well, you know, I, here's the thing. I don't know that she is wrong. I don't know that, I mean, I, we disagree on what it means, but they let, Democrats let Republicans once again define them. 
they did not have a candidate who believed in anything. I think beyond the socialism thing, you know, I don't want to talk about Latinos as some monolith group, right? There's a lot of different nationalities. People have been in the country for a long time. People who are newer. I mean, you know, it's like saying white people are all the same. And, you know, there's, I mean, Bob, they're probably more of the same than uh, Latinos. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, you know, I don't want to like put it all in one basket, but they let Democrats let Republicans define who they are. You know, they let them Republicans be the party of entrepreneurship and independence and bravado. And Democrats were, uh, we are, you know, they're going to take away your pre-existing conditions on your crappy health care. You know, there was no real effort, right? And so whether it's socialism or something else, Democrats didn't define themselves. And it's not just the messaging thing. They don't fight for anything. They didn't have a candidate who ever actually said, I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing and have it be something that they ever delivered on. And so, yeah, whether they said it was they're socialists, whether they said they were Nazis, whether they said they were, I don't know, like uh, bigamists, who, who knows? It doesn't matter what they said. They called them something and Democrats didn't respond. They, they did nothing to get out into the community in uh, Miami and throughout, uh, you know, a lot of Latin communities in Texas, the border communities for months before, you know, Republicans were there. We poured millions and millions of dollars into the campaigns of people like Amy McGrath and, you know, Jamie Harrison, who, John you know, Ossoff. John Ossoff. And, you know, they, they set it on fire by putting out 30 second TV commercials that said nothing. You yeah. know, you wouldn't know what party they were from. You know, that, that's the thing there. And so Democrats are always running from something. And Republicans, as repugnant as we know they are, you know, they define themselves and they define us. And so, again, whether it's socialism or not, uh, that's sort of irrelevant. We just kind of wimped out and once again, hit the consequences. Zed, um, I mean, we're, we're, there's, it's very likely that Joe Biden will win, by the way. It's just like, it shouldn't have been so close. And also we've been like wrecked down ballot. That was the top of my show was just talking about the wrecking in a year when like, that's really, I mean, it's not just that we lost, we lost big in a year when we should have lost or won big. So Zed, I mean, I'm seeing this kind of commentary coming out of CNN, but I'm also seeing commentary about, well, the country is just too partisan. It's just too partisan. But then you look at Florida where, you know, Cuban vote, uh, this is this is a wealthier, more conservative vote always has been uh, since the revolution, and you know there that vote influenced. I don't know. I don't know why they were factoring in like some of the Cuban vote that was never on the map, but also Joe Biden loses Florida, but fifteen dollar minimum wage wins by sixty one percent in Florida. So are we really that partisan, Zed? Like, is is this just a mirage? yeah? I I mean, I think there's there's probably a couple things going on. I believe are the other guests that had raised a few good points on this as well. So one is that, um, you know, we can't, you know, when Anna Navarro goes on and talks about socialism, this is just her thing, right? This is something she's been saying for ten plus years. She's a sense to be. She was a conservative Republican, very anti-Castro, very anti-Chavez, Venezuela. So it's kind of her pet issue, and of course, she's using that to explain the broader thing. Uh, it's not as if that was not a factor, uh, but as you mentioned that's been a traditional GOP vote in Florida. That's not necessarily the thing that was changing. I think the thing that was changing uh, was that Trump ended up doing much better among uh, younger African-American voters and among Latino voters than he did in 2016. I think a lot of people expected him to either lose support in that area or at least certainly not gain it. Um, I think a big part of that was that in the first few years of the Trump administration, there actually was a lot of wage growth for working class African-Americans and Latinos, like much more than there was under Obama, actually. Mm. And I think that's not really necessarily Trump's, like he didn't really right, do so anything to cause that. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit, because he did a little bit of stimulus, like a tax law had a little bit, but for the most part, what it really wasn't his doing, but he benefited from it, I think, because Obama did such a poor job in growing 
um, working class and middle class wages. There was stagnation throughout the Obama, Obama years. And I think we didn't really recover from the Great Recession until we really started under Trump. And then when we saw a lot of wage growth there, I think that actually earned the loyalty of quite a few voters. Uh, I heard from friends who were report reporting in some of these Latino communities, and they actually said a lot of them said, that, yeah, we don't really love Trump's personality, but he did actually, like, we had better jobs under him. We were earning more money. And I think that was a real factor for Trump, maybe not enough to save Trump ultimately, uh, but it did help him grow in kind of areas that were unexpected. And I don't think that Biden and the Democrats were highly associated with anything economic in this election. Uh, I think it was largely a referendum on COVID-19 and also just on Trump's general personality and affect and the way that he manages himself. And that may be enough to get Biden over the hump in, in some of these key states to, to win the presidency, but it really wasn't enough to create kind of a hegemonic political party or a political party that was broadly popular and able to defeat the Republicans in, in, in the places it needed to in order to at least get Senate control or enough control in the government to really enact an agenda. And the reality is that I think the Repub even if Biden wins this election, I think the Republicans are actually very well set up for the next few years. If McConnell controls the Senate, uh, if he can block any major initiatives and then blame Biden for whatever happens with the economy or business cycle, yeah. uh, I think you know the Democrats are actually in a fairly vulnerable position. Structurally, they're actually fairly weak going forward. And I think that's going to require a lot of thinking on their side uh, to, to imagine if there is some way they can be something besides an anti-Trump party when there is no more Trump anymore. So, so it's interesting you mentioned this because, uh, you know, the other thing about this clip um, that infuriated me was all indications show that the, the appeal to the center, the neoliberal idea is dead and it's working anymore. And instead of actually assessing the appeal to the center, can we just show that uh, Lincoln Project thing real quick? Because we all love the Lincoln Project. Um. While, while we're, we're getting ready for the Lincoln Project thing. This appeal to the supposed center conservatives didn't work. It may have worked at the top, but like how much money was, was literally grifted off of, off of people who just, first off, they didn't even know what Lincoln Project was for, for, for the most part. Um, they saw these ads and they were like, that sounds great, and gave their money to these like consultants who are now going to use that data to mobilize Republicans. That data, those those Democrats. So let's we've got that now. Can we show it real quick? Couch Squad should so, show some respect to people like Project Lincoln that put on to put on unis and took the field. I don't know what that is. Uh, Biden's likely sitting on AZ and Nebraska too, as safely uh, safety valves valves. Excuse me, I can't speak. Due to LP's work, big failure is DSCC. So Angelo Curzone, who uh, worked at Media Matters, senior advisor, Lincoln Pack Project. I'm baffled by this tweet because, because wasn't that the whole effing Lincoln Project grift? Uh, and the tweet was, maybe I'm less depressed than the rest of you because I never expected any Republicans to help beat Trump. And thus, I'm not depressed that they failed to materialize. So like, there's this conversation that I don't know if it's going to continue because cable news kind of picks a side and then everyone kind of goes with it, like Russiagate or whatever, of like, okay, cable news is going with the socialist fault, but like the rest of the world that sees it, sees this is this is this was their fault, like the, the Lincoln Project crew and the centrist. Jordan, what do you think? I mean, you started with that. Well, you know, I think that Democrats have ran a really good campaign for 1996 or, you know, 2002, maybe midterm election, you know, tying it to Donald Trump. Uh, they didn't run against any ideas. You know, they, they ran against a mean man who, uh, like Zaid said, helps. I mean, look, I, I hate the guy, but you know, the economy wasn't as bad as predicted, right, until COVID-19 happened. And so they ran 
you know, to values voters, you know, like they tried to do in 2004, you know, try to do some uplifting ads with the Lincoln Project. It didn't work at all. Like you said, Republicans went more to Trump than they did in 2016. They 93% voted for Trump this year. In 2016, it was 90%. So Trump was delivering to Republicans what they wanted. Maybe not in the package that they liked. Maybe he's a little crass, but they got six seats on the Supreme Court. You're not going to get Republicans who are going to vote against a guy who did that for them. And so Democrats, instead of going for, you know, speaking to their values, speaking to, well, I mean, they got to have values. That's a thing. Democrats didn't really uh, communicate that at all. I think a lot of the uh, candidates and people running the party didn't have that, you know, don't seem to project that at all. But, uh, you know, $67 million to the Lincoln Project uh, instead of spending that on, you know, not just down ballot elections, but organizers and activists, right? People who actually communicate door to door and people in Michigan, you know, they went door to door in the last few weeks in Michigan. Same thing with Minnesota. That seemed to work out for them pretty well. Uh, Arizona, if it goes to Democrats, which, you know, we're in a, you know, we're in a situation where it seems like it will, they only went, it's nothing to do with the Biden campaign, nothing to do with the Arizona Democratic Party. For 10 years, you know, activists have been working on the ground there after right. the, you know, SB 1070, the show me your papers law to, you know, get uh, Latino voters, mostly people from, you know, Central America, Mexico, uh, descendants of there to be active and embrace their political power. You know, they happen to vote for, uh, for Biden. I don't think they were huge Biden enthusiasts. They weren't swayed by the Lincoln Project, that's for sure. And so, and so, so what I'm saying is that they threw away a lot of money. They burned a lot of money. And instead of sending that money to activists and people who might have, you know, fought for a cause. Well, this is the classic problem. This is the 2016, I mean, I was on the Unity Reform Commission. Everybody knows my famous, like, like look at the budget. We're not spending money on on state parties. We're spending money on five consultants and, like, burned a billion dollars on fire in 2016. And here we are again, uh, but worse. I mean, we will win because of this seismic, I mean, at the top of the ticket, because of the seismic turnout, but the margins are actually smaller than Hillary Clinton's, which is crazy because like, you know, Hillary Clinton probably would win by a larger, she had Nevada, let's just say that. So, I mean, Zed, like, how do we get off of this, like this, this, this like theory that the center is some sort of appealable force, like electoral force. I mean, I'm in Arizona right now. I'm in Tucson. I'm in a district that's a swing district, not a high Latino population in this part of Tucson they all vote for Biden. But like, it's not because the Lincoln Project. I don't know why. I mean, decency, I have no idea. <laughs> Look, I think that there is a certain, like, there's a certain set of like factors that go into any election. And it's more usually more than one thing. And I think that ultimately COVID-19 and the fact that Trump wasn't seen as taking it seriously did probably do him in. Um, it was kind of a black swan event though right it wasn't it wasn't a matter of like biden did something amazing or wonderful uh in fact it seems like maybe the lack of things that biden did in some parts of the country are why democrats were hurt down ballot in house races and senate races um and i don't know if you'll get that again like will in two years and in four years will there be another some other cosmic event that hits the republican party very hard that wasn't seen coming that will benefit the Democrats. Um, I don't think the Lincoln Project really did anything in this election. Like they, the Senate races they got involved in, like North Carolina and Maine, seemed to seemed to kind of backfire. Didn't really work. And most of their messaging I saw was it seemed like it was designed to appeal to Democrats who wanted to give them money, right? Like it wasn't actually appealing to a voter who was on the fence somewhere. It, it seemed like. They were catering to Democrats saying, we're Republicans, but we're with you. So they give them money and then they didn't really do anything super effective with the money. Um, 
that there isn't i don't know that it's it's a matter of people explicitly thinking of themselves on the left or center or right i think it's just a matter of figuring out what is concerning people at the time and i just think that if trump had turned himself into such an unpopular president at the time that he himself probably did himself in with his own behavior right like if he was a little bit nicer, a little bit more on the ball with COVID-19, uh, if in the very last year of his presidency, he didn't kind of screw up the economic uh, response to COVID-19, he probably would have won. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it matters that Biden outspent him two to one or whatever he outspent him or the Lincoln Project or all this was happening. It's just the reality that this was kind of a referendum on Trump, which was enough to maybe get Trump out, but wasn't enough to unsettle a lot of the rest of his political party. Um, and that just, you know, it opens the question of like, what will Democrats do when there isn't a Trump there who isn't shooting himself in the foot every day, right? Like, it doesn't it doesn't look super bright for them right now unless they, they change course quite a bit, so. It seemed like that people also split tickets. So with the wave that elected, that potentially elects Biden, uh, that wave also elected, you know, Mitch McConnell and many of these other, I mean, actually forget about the ones that were obvious you're gonna lose. Uh, elected Republican to take over Tom Swazi's seat in in Long Island in New York City. Um, elected Max uh, got Max Rose out of office in Staten Island, right. and now Nicole Maliotakis is going to be a Congresswoman there. I mean, this is the same wave that did that, so it's it's really kind of mind boggling. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the future before we wrap up. So so. On one hand, like the labels like socialism um, that Bernie ran on uh, are going to be used against the Democrats. Like, they're going to want to disassociate from that. And I might agree with that, actually. But moving forward, with the Republicans holding so much power, in four years from now, we are going to have an extraordinarily different makeup, electorate makeup. You have millennials who are already under 40 years old, the most diverse generation in history, and aging out, uh, greatest generation for sure, and, and boomers. So the, the math, I mean, it's just going to look a lot different and very, very, very quickly. And it already is. Um, and that could affect the margins in which states are swing states. And and that could be the boom that the Democrats need. With that being said, words like socialism are more popular with people under 40. And I, I, I want to go to Jordan first, because, I, I mean, do you think that the messaging doesn't need to switch. I mean, do, do, should we lean into socialism? Should we lean into these labels? Or what do we do moving forward to, to win over this electorate in 2024? You know, at some point we went by the name liberals and we became progressives. Uh, and now liberals are kind of like a dirty word. Uh, you know, it's the kind of the, the brunch eaters that we, that we hate now. Uh, so you know, I don't know what the term is. If it's socialism, if it's you know, DSA types or progressives, liberals, whatever it is. I think it's leaning into an ideology and a policy, no matter what. You know, I, uh, I graduated in college right, college right out of the Great Recession, right? And now we're in the second point where now we have a second gigantic, even worse recession. Uh, if you want to get younger voters and, care, and get them interested in caring about you and your races, you know, look at the ones that appealed, uh, that were interested in Democrats, whether it was Ed Markey talking about the climate and uh, health care, obviously Bernie Sanders. You know, these are not flukes. They, they didn't go to them because they thought they were funny on Twitter or something like that. They had principles and ideology. And so whether you call it, I mean, Ed Markey's not a socialist, but he stood up for something. He believed in climate change uh, and fighting against it. He was not, you know, a, a, you know, a lifetime millionaire grifter like a Joe Kennedy III. You know, so he actually had principles, and I think that's what it's going to be about, right? I, I want to say you know, Lincoln Project just announced that they are going to put their money towards creating a new Republican Party. So uh, good job setting the uh, money on fire there. Just made that announcement. The investment, but, wait, wait. So basically yeah. the down, um, the, the investment money was, 
was from Democrats. Congratulations. Yeah. The Democrats just funded the future Republican Party. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what, what people, young Democrats might just call them cucks or something. You know, I think that's what Democrats need to avoid being from now on. Uh, you know, I think that for me, I, you know, worked really hard to get a lot of down ballot Democrats elected. And I'm realizing I liked a lot of those people. I don't know exactly how all their campaigns worked. 2021, I'm going to be putting all my time and energy to helping uh, finance an activist movement, right? Mm -hmm. To help these people on the ground who are going to be shaping primaries, who are going to be shaping policy, who are going to be forcing whichever Democratic politicians remain uh, to do something that is, you know, have some principles, reach out to people who don't have financial stability, do not have any hope of a future right now. And if it's basically anyone from like 35 on down, uh, mm -hmm. I just barely qualify. But I think that's what it's going to have to be. So if you want to call it socialism, you want to call it, uh, you know, hyper progressivism or, uh, you know, anti-brunch liberalism, I don't know. But I think that's what it's going to have to be. It's going to have to be standing for something uh, and something increasingly extreme, because otherwise you're just not going to break out of any sort of, uh, and when I say extreme, I mean, like, you know, have actual principles that you can quantify yeah. and people can rally around. So otherwise, you know, we're going to get run over. I mean, Zed, you were uh, constantly you know, openly criticizing the Bernie campaign for their um, their unstrategic messaging, which is something that Matt Stoller just discussed, not the messaging side, but just other, other um, problems in the campaign. And I come out of this election thinking we have to toughen up. Like I live in socialist headquarters in Astoria, New York. Uh, the fights that folks are getting in are not the fights that are going to win us a Senate. They're not the fights that are going to win us more than a couple of seats in the House, which is, thank God, it happens in left districts. We have to be militant. We have to be extremely thoughtful and careful about our messaging and our organizing. And you've been talking about this for a long time. So what are the lessons that we could learn from the Bernie uh, campaign this cycle and take them into the next, the next what, what Jordan's building? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that you it really does matter to have like a campaign. Like, I think Bernie's philosophy was that, like, he's Bernie, the candidate, he's going to go around and have big rallies. But it doesn't matter very much to have, like, tons of press staff. It doesn't matter to have relationships doing uh, the political work, getting endorsements. It doesn't matter to do a lot of, like, media work or, or actually cultivate uh, relationships with, with the media. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, actually, it does matter. Like, it does matter to have an actual, like, well-oiled machine. And I think if Bernie did have a well-oiled machine, there's a chance he, he would be the president now. Um, the, the, the phase where you're a bunch of scrappy rebels and the phase where you're going to take over the country, you know, it's a process, but once you get into the phase where you're getting ready to take over the country, you need to stop acting like the scrappy rebels. Right. And I think even when, after Bernie won Nevada, which is a great victory for him, he was still talking about fighting the democratic establishment and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, at that point he should have been consolidating, right? He should have been consolidating the democratic party and saying, I am the new democratic party. I'm happy to bring Pete and Joe's supporters and Amy's supporters and everyone on board. It's time to go and, and beat Trump. But I think he was still in this mindset that he's a rebel fighting this upstart kind of uphill battle. Um, at a certain point, you need to transition over to be a leader and have that confidence. I think honestly, if there's one thing we can take away from Trump and maybe he overdoesn't in this regard, he has a ton of confidence, right? <laughs> Uh, he he was a wrecking ball in 2016 in his political party. But once he took over, he was happy to make mend fences with everybody and, and you know get along with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and all, and all these people. And he was happy to assert the role of a leader to those people. And I think that's what Bernie should have done then. And I think in the future, you know, we have to stop. You know, you got to stop thinking of yourself as fighting the power when you want to become the power. And I think asserting yourself confidently and having that as as you know, Jordan was saying, was having this kind of assertive agenda and a clear message um, and acting like you are going to be able to take power and deliver that to people rather than, 
saying, well, my, my goal is to move someone to the left or my goal is to, you know, advocate for three issues and maybe people will talk about those three issues more or something. You know, at the end of the day, people do want a leader. They do want someone they can rally around. But, but um, I want to I push back on that just a second because, yeah. okay, great. So, you know, he's going to have to, just as he does in the Senate, work with people on, on the other side of the same aisle and the other side of, of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. But, but at what point is that like, like building alliances with people who are not your friends, who are not on your side, and who are you were, you're actively at war with? So I hear you where he could have, and, and, and granted, we're not in this situation anymore, but like yeah. he could have gone in and said, I am the presumed nominee, like just owning it. Because there was a point where he was the presumed nominee, and I mm-hmm. felt like he didn't feel that. Um, and, and, and done the pressuring to get everybody else out and fall in line. But, but how do you also get them to like support a $15 minimum wage and Medicare yeah. for all and say, sign up? You know, if you want to be in power, you got to go with my agenda, just as you forced me to do your agenda. I think that's right. I think that there is a balance to be struck between those things. But if you're the leader, then they should be falling in behind you rather than you having to fall in behind them, right? So like now it's rumored that Bernie Sanders wants to be Joe Biden's uh, labor secretary. If Joe, Biden, if Joe Biden does appoint Bernie as labor secretary, then Bernie would have to like go out there and be like, yeah, I love Joe Biden's new trade agreement with Colombia or yeah. South Korea or whatever. Like, you know, at that point, Bernie would be falling in behind Biden rather than vice versa. I think when you become the leader and you assert yourself, eventually you can pressure people to kind of fall in, in, in ranks behind you. And I think people have done that in the past. I think someone who did, who did that very well actually was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was considered very extreme in the Republican Party at one point, really wild guy out in the wings. Uh, but once he took over, he consolidated very quickly. And now it basically became his political party. Reagan set the economic course in particular of the Republican Party for the next 40 years, right? He completely crushed the uh, populist economic, the economic populist in the Republican Party, where there's maybe like two or three in the entire U.S. Congress who have somewhat populist views. So I think it is entirely possible for the rebel to go, to go from rebel to leader. Um, but you have to be you have to be very careful in how you do it, and you have to be you have to be very assertive. And I think you have to really, really want that power to do it. And as I think all three of us were saying here, yeah, there's there's a certain level of militancy or like almost uh, aspiration or ambition that you have to have to do it. So, Jordan, what are your final thoughts? You know, I would say that I mean I, I agree. You need to be able to wield that power and want to wield that power. I think that there's so much rot in the Democratic Party right now. And the difference, I think, between a Trump and the Republicans and Bernie or whoever is going to be the leftist candidate in the future for Democrats is Trump delivered what mainstream or far right, whatever you want to call them, Republicans wanted. Uh, Democrats who are on the mainstream or, you know, the centrist part of the party are terrified of what a Bernie Sanders or what, you know, left, leftist people represent. And so that's where I think the big divide is. You know, Reagan delivered what all those uh, people on the you know, Republican yeah. side wanted, uh, you know, and Trump is doing the same thing just with a filthy mouth. And so I think that a big part of it's going to be, I agree that we're going to have to wield power within the party, but that means taking it. And I think that happens on a state level. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at state organizations this year and the Florida Democratic Party and, you know, uh, is just a mess, for example. Anna yeah. Eskamami, who's a representative down there, one of the few bright spots, bright young progressives there. She is an absolute, you know, she was saying straight up on Twitter, the, the party needs to change. And the, the uh, down in Florida, the membership, the leadership needs to resign. I think we're seeing the same thing in New York, Working Families Party, I got to mention, uh, crushed the, ex- the requirements to get on the ballot for 2022. And, you know, there's a lot of confidence there amongst the state senators, the, the good young class of state senators are saying, all right, this is our party now. And I think that it's going to require, you know, I don't want to use the word coup because uh, we earn that power. But it's going to require that on the inside and then, you know, lead, forcing them to fall in line, like Zaid said. Yeah. Um, 
I don't have the same confidence that you do in New York. I think uh, there needs to be an awakening of what the history of that party is because they've supported Republicans in the past. And, um, you know, and I'll leave it at that because <laughs> now I'm going to get an attack by them. But, you know, I know them very well. Uh, so, Zed, um, closing thoughts. <laughs> Look, I think that there is politics is highly unpredictable, right? Like it's, it's easy to get pessimistic at a certain result or overly optimistic at a certain result. Um, but I think we don't really know what the future holds. And I think the most important thing to do is instead of reading tea leaves and trying to figure out what the future is, is you, got, you got to go out and make the future, right? You got to assert your will. I think it looks like President Trump is it's pretty good chance to lose, like 80% chance to lose, I'd say right now. Um, I think one thing you can, you can hand him is that he did is that he really asserted his will, right? Like four years ago in this time, we were, everyone was shocked that he had gotten to that point. Uh, six months before that, nobody thought he would even get to be a Republican nominee. Uh, but he was very confident what he was doing. And even when it looked like he might lose in the short term doing something, he had this idea in his mind that it would, it would work out in the longer term. And I think that's how you have to look at the election results today. It's, 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 a, constantly, it's a constantly changing game, and it's a fluid situation. Um, but if people put the work into it, you know, it could be all kinds of things two, two years or four years from now. So. Lots of organizing, lots of strategy. Uh, if we have a moment to sit back and reflect and read some history of revolutions, I think there's a, a real opportunity for us to, to wise up fast about what our next steps forward are. Uh, Jordan, Zacharin, thank you so much for joining. Zajalani, thank you so much for joining. And special shout outs, let's do some shout outs here. Uh, we have Kowalski from Nebraska. Oh my God, thank you for the love. He says, a narrow Joe win can be better. It proves the center is set and going right is dumb. The left put the team on their back and likely won this thing exactly. The left is the future. Need national plan or we will be defeated in detail. That's exactly right. TFLV, thank you for the love. Tony DeMeo, I hope I said your name right. Thank you for the love. And Shay, thank you for the love. And Vinny Holiday, uh, you made a point last night about AOC low with margin. And Sam made that point about Ilhan Omar, what does low progressive win margin mean? So it's something to look into. I have, I'm really, um, I was, you know, we were watching the results come in last night. What, what he's, Vinny is alluding to is last night I was looking at the margin of win for AOC. You know, I, I live in that area. Like there are still conservatives in Queens and there are still conservatives in the Bronx. And I think I was a little surprised by how well in a district that is overwhelmingly democratic, um, the conservative did. And then when I looked at the margins, the margin of win for Nicole Maliotakis in a, an actual conservative district against Max Rose, that margin, um, you know, it, it, it was larger. And so I, I think something, I have to look at the number. We don't know enough yet. Uh, that was an early assessment. I'm not sure I'm not sure that the New York operation, um, we have a real understanding of, of the complexity of voters in New York City and state right now. And I think it's shifting a lot. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, I think that we really have to focus on building our own machines, uh, our own machines, uh, not being taken over by other machines, and um, being really sophisticated about what what organizing is like in New York, you know, it's really good and it's important for us to make phone calls and knock on doors in elections and have DSA members win. And I, I mean, like, it's extraordinary to see that, like the takeover of the state legislature when 10 years ago, half the state legislature was being locked up, the leaders. Um, with that, we also have to build a, a legacy machine, something that operates in between cycles and knocking on doors and 
and and and actually recruits candidates, builds funding and operations and messages in between um, cycles. Essentially, our own party. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't get so fixated on having the party line as much as the operation. What like Tammany Hall is not complimenting Tammany Hall, um, you know, but it was there to represent workers and give jobs to workers. And there was all this corruption too. We don't want that part, but we do have to build some sort of operation. More on that later. Kowalski from Nebraska back again. Thank you. Oh no, that's the same one, right? Yeah, that is the same one. All right. Thanks to Professor Harvey K in the chat and everyone in there mixing it up as well as MIDI doctors and Jules for working the algorithms and super, super huge thanks to our moderators, Bob and Chokin. Uh, you guys are amazing. I don't even know what goes on. I watch it like afterwards and I'm like, how is this all happening while the show's going on? Thank you all. Much love. So I'll take a breath. Take a walk if you can today. We'll get through this. We we will. It, this is this is our path forward now, uh, but we have to seize this. So, much love to everybody. I will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern.